Father in heaven, I thank you for uh, this Sabbath day and for the blessings of this day and the blessings of this service already, for Alex and for uh, Tony and his story and Patty and her recitation. And now, Lord, and, and the music today, and Lord, I pray now you will speak to us from your word that we will hear and our hearts, our hearts will be convicted. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been uh, on a little series we're calling Determinations. It's going to wrap up today. One more day to focus on this, and we've timed this quite well because, of course, uh, what happens on February 14? Who remembers what that day is? Valentine's Day. We have a winner. Very good. Valentine's Day, the love day. And what better week to be in 1 Corinthians 13 than shortly before Valentine's Day. However, I, I do want to say this. I, I think there is a, a significant further level to what's taking place here in 1 Corinthians 13 than what sometimes becomes kind of a shallow treatment we give it in the context of, of Valentine's Day. This is about a lot more than once a year coming up with a dozen roses and some chocolates. Now, I'm not saying don't do that. I am saying, okay, good start. But what this chapter is calling us to is far deeper than that. And it's far deeper than just, just a simple romantic feeling in the heart. Because that's never going to sustain us. That's never going to take us to where this chapter is truly calling us to go. But before we get there, let's review where we've been. We started in the book of Jonah, and I mentioned that briefly before uh, as we were up in the baptistry, but I want to read to you again from Jonah chapter 1, and any of these texts you want to follow along in, you can take the Bible there in front of you, that's the translation I'm using. Jonah chapter 1, verse 14, therefore they, speaking of the mariners, the men on the ship with Jonah, called out to the Lord, and when we say the Lord here, we mean this is the name of God. This is Yahweh. Remember, these were pagans, and they were calling out to a specific God. Called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the man feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. Why did we use this text? Well, we may use this text because it makes the point whenever we have a dramatic experience with the Lord, it ought to move us to action. And it moved those men to action. They made sacrifice and they made vows. And, and as we mentioned before, that's what Alex did in our presence today. She made a vow. She said, Lord Jesus, I am yours. Take my life and lead my life. And this is a vow we need to make continually because, because as life goes on, he leads us further. None of us have arrived at the final place the Lord is leading us. All of us have opportunity for growth. All of us need to continue to move forward down the road that the Lord is leading us. And to make a determination or a resolution, and that's an appropriate response to the witnessing of the working of the power of God. Our working definition for determinations has been this. A determination is deciding what you will do and then making sure you do it. That's like, uh, 
yeah, boy, I really need to put oil in the car. Let's go back to Tony's story. I really need to put oil in the car, but I don't make sure I do it. There's going to be a cost for that, isn't there? We can determine in our minds something that seems important, but if we don't put in place what it takes to actually make it happen, then nothing's going to change. We've determined a few things so far. One thing we determined, we're going to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, and all of our strength. But what do we need to put in place to make that happen? I'll tell you one thing that'll help. That is making sure every day you spend some time reading your Bible and praying. That will help. That will help you grow. That is a determination you can make. We determined to have no other gods before him. That's something that we can, we can determine in our minds, but if we don't put something in place, it's, it's not going to happen. What would we put in place on that? Well, to, to really decide... If the Lord is asking me to move away from this or into that, I need to go. I need to do it. I need to not love other things more than the voice of the Lord in my life. We determined that we would live love, that we would love one another. It's the second of the greatest commandments. And we're going to continue reflecting on that today. And we're going to get some uncomfortably practical suggestions for how we would do that. And we determined we would love each other in word and in deed and in generosity. We talked about how when we as a community, as a church, make a budget, meaning how we're going to operate together as a people, how we're going to maintain this place, how we're going to keep the different things going, it is a commitment we make to one another. And it is a way we show love for each other. We show love on the on the administrative side of the church by not spending more than we say we will. And we show love on the participation side by making sure we give what we said we would. This is a way we show love for each other. Romans 13, verses 8 and 9. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has an, another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then reviewing last Sabbath, our key text was 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. It said these words, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The whole point of what we talked about last Sabbath in 1 Corinthians 12, which talks about God pours upon his people, his community, his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit brings gifts. And these come to every one of you. Every one of you who has put faith in the Lord Jesus and professed that faith in front of the community. The Spirit has come to you. You've been given gifts of the Holy Spirit, not for your entertainment but for the common good. We are to take what the Lord has given us and share it with one another. Patty shared with us today what the Lord had given her, the words that she learned. She shared and we were blessed. Tony shared and we were blessed. The musicians share and we're blessed. But this is not the only way it happens. It happens right now. Uh, Alicia is downstairs right now in the kitchen collecting food because we're going to have a potluck afterward. Uh, no, wrong word. Fellowship dinner afterward. That's what we say now. 
fellowship dinner afterward. That is a way we bless one another. The gifts that we're given, we share. When you take time to remember the church with your donations, this is, this is giving of the gifts we've been given. This is how we bless each other for the common good. And last Sabbath, our determination was that each of us would determine to do our part. There is something God has enabled you to do that nobody else can, or at least nobody else can do it the way you do it. And the church is diminished if you do not share what you've been given. But let's go on today. We're going to go on boldly into 1 Corinthians 13. But before we get there, we actually have to do the, the introduction to it that actually takes place at the end of chapter 12. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, we find these words, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. He's saying, desire that the Holy Spirit pours upon you things that are useful and blessing to the larger community. And then he adds this, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So why would he make that comment? Well, Paul has an interesting point to make here, and we need to catch this. It is critical that each of us uses the gifts that God has given us for the good of the body. But if we don't do it with the right spirit in our hearts, it doesn't have the impact it should have. There is a context within which everything in the church must take place. And if it doesn't, the church may look effective. It may seem to do things really well. But if this thing is not at its core, it's not really the church of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes God is able to still bless and work and carry out his mission. I mean, consider the story of Israel. When did they ever get it all right? That would be never. Yet Jesus was still able to accomplish his purpose. And we do not need to fear that God will not be able to accomplish his purpose. But we do need to be mindful. That if we truly want to represent Jesus, we've got to get this next chapter right. So today we reflect on the more excellent way. And I'm going to give you the conclusion in advance. So here's the conclusion. Here's where we're landing today. In the kingdom of God, what you accomplish is less important than how you accomplish it. What you accomplish is less important than how you accomplish it. And the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who loves. Not the one who stands up here every Sabbath. Not the one who sings perfectly. Not the one who knows the secret of the lights and can make them come on. But rather the one who loves. 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there because we're going we're gonna to be right there pretty much the rest of the way. I'm going to add a couple other verses, but if you want to follow the key, this is where it is. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So there were some interesting things going on in the church in Corinth that I don't think we completely understand and I don't think we've completely experienced. Uh, but in that time, we go back, of course, to Acts chapter 2. There was the event 
where the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in other languages. And it would seem in some sense that that could be perhaps what this is a reference to, but, but that doesn't necessarily make sense with exactly what's said in 1 Corinthians 14. There were, there were some strange things going on and there were some things in the context of worship that I think would probably make us fairly uncomfortable. And I think to some degree Paul was like, yeah, some of this is getting a little wild. But at the same time, let us always maintain humility in our hearts to not think that we have everything figured out exactly right and that there's nothing else that the Lord could reveal and we could learn. But, but leaving that aside, he says, even if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and we have no idea what exactly that might be. I was walking around in an angel robe earlier, and, but I was not speaking in a different tongue, so I don't know what that is entirely. Even if I'm speaking this glorious speech, if my life does not reflect love, then it almost doesn't matter at all what I say. In fact, he says it doesn't matter. In fact, let me give you the illustration here. We have a symbol. So let's go back here and, uh, and see how well this goes for the sermon. All right? Let's stand for prayer. How'd we do? Okay, it, it's a bit of hyperbole. I get it. But the point he's making is if your life is not a life of love, nobody can hear your voice over the clanging of how unpleasant you are, of how unloving you are. I can't hear you. The noise of your life is too loud. That's a call to humility, isn't it? It's a call to rein it in just a little bit. Gable shared with me a quote the other day. I should have brought it. I should have read it to you. But I just thought of it now. He, he shared with me this quote. And, and it says, uh, 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 it says the proverbial saying, uh, a little bit of honey attracts more flies than gallons of gall. And it goes through and it says, if you will care about someone and show them love and be kind to them, they will be open to the slightest suggestion you might have. But if you are mean and cruel and unkind, and it goes through this amazing description, there is no steel hard enough, there is no point sharp enough, there is no truth true enough to break through to their heart if you've sealed them off with unkindness. Clanging symbol. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. This is a particularly hard one for those of us that are really good Adventists. Because we have a very high value on knowledge and doctrine. And to tie the bow on top, powerful faith. But this thing takes all of those on at once. You could know everything. And you could have the prophetic powers. And so much faith that the front range moved all the way to the other side of the state. 
But if you're a jerk, it doesn't matter. Because you attract nobody. In fact, everybody would go with the mountains. They're done with you. Head knowledge is good. But it's not enough. Faith is wonderful. But if all you are is convinced God can act, but you're mean, the Holy Spirit's not in you. Verse 3, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So the word martyr comes from, i got to be careful here because there are people who are actually good at Greek, but I think uh, from, from a word hamartia, which also means witness. And the concept here, when the name of the martyr got placed on Christians who were dying for the faith, they were dying as a witness. That was the context here. But dying as a witness is meaningless to the people observing. You're not witnessing if, in fact, you're not a loving person. Now think about the story of Stephen. Stephen is... He testifies before the Sanhedrin, and he makes everyone crazy. They drag him out. They take stones. They stone him. And even in the midst of it, he says, forgive them. He has love in his heart. And it ends up being a powerful witness. You see, it's not your willingness to die for Jesus that is proof that you are a Christian. It's commendable. But it's not proof. John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you're brave enough to die in front of everybody. That's no, that's not what it says. Now, you may be called to do that. I don't know. But that's not what it says. The way they will know that you are my disciples is if you have love for one another. We must be known first for our love for each other and second for our good deeds. First for our love, second for our good deeds. Or, or maybe even better, even martyrdom will mean little if we are mean. Verse 4. Love is patient. God, that was so hard. That's, uh, I think, one of the primary reasons you have children. To teach you to be patient and not self-centered. Because they challenge you, and because they have needs, because they don't care what time you went to bed, they're still getting up at six. But it grows you. There's this prayer that you pray, and it's, it's a scary one. Lord, help my patience to grow. But then you realize, wait, there's only one way for that to happen. 
I have to be irritated. Something has to bother me. Something has to offend my process. But love, it turns out, is patient. And love is kind. Kindness is a, is a special thing. And when you encounter it in someone, you're drawn to it. Someone who, who maybe has reason to even be annoyed at you. But instead they're kind. We got an overwhelming example of kindness one time. I was driving in our minivan with, with the kids with me. All the kids were with me. Alicia wasn't. I was down in the area of Thomaston, Georgia. And we had been out at the river there. And the kids had been swimming in the river. And they were all wet. And, and they got in the car. Got to be careful that this story doesn't get too long. Because it's a funny story. But anyway, I told the boys. They were young. They were pretty young. I told them, well, take off those pants. I don't want those getting the seats wet. So they're all wrapped up in towels. They don't have their pants on. We're going along, and, and, and one of them in the back, I think it was Gable in the back, said, are we going to get something to eat? Nathan was sitting next to me over here. Uh, Gable, Ariel, Aaron was in the far back. And I, and I turned back to look at Ariel because I was concerned she'd gone to sleep. She was a baby. She was still in her car seat. Not, not a little baby, but small. She's in the car seat. I turned back to look. And uh, she was asleep, and then I turned over here because I knew I needed some gas. I, I saw a gas station, I checked the price, and I looked in front of me and realized that car is stopped, and I'm not. It was a pickup, actually. And there was no way to stop. I had enough time to say to the rest of them, sorry, boys, I wrecked the car. It's funny what you think of in these moments. And proceeded to plow full on into the back of this truck. Well, completely my fault, completely on me. The kids get out of the car. I, I'd say, okay, everybody, get out of the car. And Gable's like, really? Not wearing pants. So uh, they managed, Nathan put a towel on. Gable managed to get his pants on. We're all standing by the side of the road looking rather pitiful. When the, 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 the wife of the man whose truck I ran into shows up to take him home, and she sees how pitiful we all look. And instead of taking her husband home, she gathers up Gable and Nathan and Aaron into her car, runs them to the house, gives them fresh towels, gives them clothes to put on, sets them down in front of the TV, gives them a snack, and then comes back to pick up the rest of us. This is kindness. I just wrecked their truck. And all she can have is concern for my kids. Okay, that's kindness. And when you see it, it's beautiful. Eventually, Alicia came down. We hung out with them for all afternoon. Alicia had to drive down from Atlanta to get us. It was a about two-hour drive. They sent us home with, with, uh, with pepper jam and other lovely parting gifts. I, I wrecked these people. But that was their kindness. Love does not envy or boast. Envy is a terrible thing. There's a whole commandment written about it. The 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Envy will destroy you. 
longing for someone else's reality, someone else's experience, giving away your life, spending your whole time longing for someone else's. Love is not like that. Love does not boast. Sometimes boast happens at the same time as envy. It's, it's an attempt to overcompensate. Love is not arrogant. That's the old, we're too good for you thing. That's the community that is not welcoming to those who come in who are not worthy to be among them. That can be a hard one, but love's not that way. Love is not rude. Some of these are kind of hard for me because different personalities process these things differently. Um, I, I'm by nature an introvert. You know, I like to try to move through the world and leave no wake. You know, no one knew he was even there. Because I don't always like to encounter and engage with strangers. But that can be perceived as rude. And it can even be wrong sometimes. Now, I'm thankful that God has given the the spiritual gift of extroversion to a few of you, and that you don't mind engaging strangers. Because I can learn to love people after a while. I'm struck by those of you who seem to love them right off. That's an amazing gift. And it's one we all need to work on. It does not insist on its own way. That's a hard one, and we got to find a balance to it, because sometimes we do have to decide how we're going to do something, right? And sometimes that means someone has to continue to push in that direction as we all come to a consensus that that's what we're going to do. But there's a difference between standing for what you believe to be true and insisting on your own way. And we have to find that balance, and we have to live that balance as a community. That's why we try to make our decisions together. That's why we have a vision board that, by the way, meets this next Tuesday. We want to make sure you're a part of that if you're on that board. But that's why we have a group like that, why we have an elders board that met this last week. And we talked about things. And there are often people who feel strongly one way or another, and that's okay. But when we make decisions, we move together. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Here's the one that, that was relevant to me today. I was a little irritable this morning. I was, I was tired. That's never helpful. I didn't have my usual breakfast food. You see, I'm a bit of a creature of habit. I like to do things... In, a, in the same way. And I have little Sabbath morning traditions and rituals that I do that help prepare me and prepare my mind for what's taking place. And one or two of those elements were not present because we got into town late and we had to do things here at the church and then it was after Sabbath and there wasn't time to go to the grocery store. And you know how that goes. So I was irritable. have to watch that because love is not irritable and it's not resentful it doesn't hang on to a hurt 
Now, yes, hurts have to be addressed. Yes, sometimes we have to make decisions about our life that, that certain people have to be put over here, and we can't stay in that. Boundaries are still a real part of love, but it doesn't hang on to a resentfulness in the heart. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This is another kind of hard one sometimes. Well, I'm glad they got what they deserved. Yeah, I need to not rejoice at that. I need to not rejoice. A lot of those is the love does not list. Does not envy, does not boast, is not arrogant, is not rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice in wrongdoing. That's the love does not do list. But there is a love does list, and it started that way. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now we jump down and we add some more to what love does list. Love rejoices with the truth. It's very important for us to not be duplicitous people. It's very important for us to live our lives in a way that if the full truth were told, it'd be the same as what we're saying it is. To be honest, to be genuine, and that we would rejoice when the truth is told, not feel embarrassed. We should long for the truth to be told. Love bears all things. Okay, let's not, again, let's not miss the point here. We're not saying that, that there isn't, there aren't boundaries essential in the context of life and living. But it is to say that we are not provoked to hostility as a result of the behavior of others. Now, we may be provoked to action sometimes but we're not provoked to hatred and hostility. Boy, it's hard though, right? Especially in a polarized age. Especially in a day when, when people are so wrong, in my opinion. One of my favorite memes, I saw it a long time ago, this guy frantically typing on his computer, it's obviously late at night. His wife says, come to bed. And he says, I can't. Someone on the internet is wrong. How much energy to solve nothing with people we don't even have a relationship with. So much of the discourse in our land, in our time, is people who don't know each other arguing over points that aren't even connected. Why are we wasting our energy getting involved in this? Speak truth but bear all things. Love believes all things. There's a, there's a saying that my friend uh, has that, that I got to see this week that's visiting in the area. Um, and now I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something like assume positive intent. Rather than going around being sure everyone is out to get you or everyone is just evil, choose to start your interaction by assuming positive intent. By assuming that person does not mean to kill you. Now I suppose there's environments where you might need to have a slightly different mentality if 
if you're on the front line in a war, maybe you're going to have to think a little differently on that. But for the majority of the reality of our lives, rather than when our spouse comes to us to address an issue, rather than assuming it's because of some problem in them that they're doing it, let's assume there's a positive intent here. And let's try to act on that. Rather than when someone in the church has got their crazy idea, let's assume they mean well. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things. Hanging on to hope is an important part of being Christian. The hope that is ours in the sacrifice of Jesus, the hope that is ours in the resurrection of Jesus, the hope that is ours in the promise of the return of Jesus, the hope that is ours in the reality of the community of faith that God creates and brings together. We have this hope, to coin a phrase. We have it. Now, that's not to say there aren't biochemical realities, there isn't depression, there aren't needs of counseling, there isn't grief that we have to deal with. All of these things are real. But it is an important part of love to hang on to hope. Hang on to hope in our lives, about ourselves, about those we love, about those we care about. Because you know what? Everybody's on a journey. And sometimes the Holy Spirit brings about outcomes we don't expect. And we hang on to hope. Endures all things. See, we don't quit. We don't give up. We keep going. We get up every morning. We open our Bible. We read the Word of God. We pray. We go out and we face our reality. And then we come back. And we keep going. Because love never ends. That's what verse 8 says. Love never ends. So here's the reality about us as Christians. If we could live this, us as the people, the Boulder Adventist Church, the quality of our relational goodwill to one another and to the world ought to be unmatched in the world. The way we love one another and the positive regard we give to the world ought to be unmatched. There ought not to be little organizations here and there that actually love more than us. Now, it's not a competition. I'm not saying it that way. But what I am saying is given what we know, what we've been given, the promises we have in Jesus, and the reality that love for one another, love for the Lord our God, love for each other are the greatest commandments. The fact that we know these things, there ought not to be groups that don't know these things that are better at it. We ought to be best at this. Keep going. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. I hear these verses as a call to humility. And I think humility is key to love. But I hear these verses as a call to humility because even, even our greatest works, even our deepest thoughts, even our most complete understandings, our points on which we are so sure, all of it is partial. 
None of us understands it all. And, and if my mind is working right at all, this, this eternity that God has in mind will not be one where I start with absolute understanding of everything because how boring would eternity be then? But rather an endless round of growth and knowing and understanding and living and love that does not have a cap. So don't get caught in your head that you know everything. You know a lot, but all of our knowledge is partial. We hold everything with an open hand. And in humility, we receive new understanding. And don't be afraid of this. Because your salvation is not based on what you know. It's based on the life, death, and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So hold it with an open hand. Be ready to learn. Be ready to grow. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We will invariably not get everything right. But we do need to get love right. This is why I say in the context of the church, whether it's a business meeting or a board meeting or a, any kind of a discussion, it matters way more how we make a decision then what decision we make. Why do I say that? We can change our mind. If we find out a month later that was stupid, we just vote something else. But let's say a month ago, we did get the right answer, but we were so mean to each other that half the church isn't talking to the other half. Does it matter if we got it right at that point? No. Because we got the most important thing wrong. Now, when we make these decisions, they're important in the moment. Absolutely. But I want you right now to list for me all the decisions that the people who have been a part of this congregation since 1879, list for me every decision they made in all those years that are still critical right now. Probably can't, can you? But how many times did they get in stupid fights and arguments over it? You know, the decision they made that matters most is to be a community of love that's in this place. And that's the decision we have to make every time. Every time we gather. That's the only one that goes on. We invite the band to come back up because we're going to spend some time in this context of, of understanding our need to love one another, to come together as a community that loves to the throne of God and praise and sing as a community committed to this love for each other. Because verse 13 says this, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Faith is pretty awesome. Hope is pretty incredible, but love is even more. Now, you're lucky that uh, 
We only spent as much time on this chapter today as we did because I've actually done three complete series on different parts of this thing. So we, we could be here. We could be here a while. This is a powerful chapter. And it's way more than a romantic feeling. Because as soon as that romantic feeling goes away, the community would just fall to pieces. This is agape. This is deep love for one another. That comes from a conviction of, I want good for you. I want best for you. I will give what the Lord has given me that you might have better. You see, if we get into the selfish world where we all pull back, nobody has enough and we're miserable. But if we get into the love world where we all give, we all have more than we need. That's how it works. That's the one we got to live in. So back to the conclusion. What we accomplish less important than how we accomplish it. And the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who loves.